This ADN Politics Podcast is brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible. From the Anchorage Daily News, this is ADN Politics, a podcast navigating Alaska's changing and sometimes wild political landscape. I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. Today, I'm talking to Republican Senator-elect Kathy Giesel, who's returning to the Alaska legislature in January. Senator Giesel is now part of a 17-member majority made up of Republicans and Democrats. She's serving as the Senate Majority Leader. We're going to talk about what she thinks the legislature can realistically accomplish this year, that big PFD proposal from the governor, ranked choice voting, the future of Alaska Republican Party, and more. Senate Majority Leader Kathy Giesel, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. You're now part of an extra large majority in the Senate with eight Republicans, nine Democrats. So broadly, why did you want to be a part of that group? Well, I ran again because there are so many things that need to get done. We've talked about issues for so long. And and there is a great bipartisan group that agrees that it's time to get things done. And so I wanted to be part of that group. Um, we all have similar uh, similar issues that we want to focus on. And so it's actually a great pairing. Brings in lots of different views, uh, not just um, views on subjects, but geographic input uh, from different parts of the state. And, of course, political viewpoints. And, and that's a very rich conversation. I definitely want to dial in on those issues. But but first, for folks who may not follow the legislature as closely as others, you're going to be the Senate Majority Leader. And so could you explain what does that job entail exactly? Well, it's sort of herding cats. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's there's uh, management type role roles to it. Uh, you know, who's going to be present on the floor that day, who might be sick and absent. We're going to have a vote on this, that, or the other thing. Um, but also keeping in touch with all the members as far as what pieces of legislation they may be personally offering that might be getting hung up somewhere or their views on a caucus priority that they might want to talk about, just kind of helping to keep people communicating and unified as much as possible. Not that they have to agree on everything, and and we won't agree on everything, uh, and that's fine. Uh, But there are things that we should be really aligning with, and that's kind of what the majority leader's role is. We talked about this a bit on the podcast after Election Day. The formation of these caucuses is kind of a secretive process. And respecting that, can you explain a little bit about how this caucus came together? Well, to do that, I have to also point out that I lost re-election in 2020. So I've spent the last two years as a citizen uh, watching the legislature work, just like every other citizen, though perhaps with a bit more focus. Um, I, I attended through uh, the computer system almost every finance committee meeting. Wow. So I did stay in close, close proximity to the group. But there's been alignment occurring, actually, over the last four years. So again, uh, 2019 to 2020, I was the Senate president. And in being Senate president, it's any Senate president, it's important 
to have conversations with the minority. And the minority leader at that time was Tom Begich. And so the very first day of session, I had arranged to have a meeting with Tom Begich. Now, Tom and I had known each other. He had been serving in the Senate. I was already there when he came. And we had very different political views. So I think we both entered that first meeting with a bit of apprehension about each other. But by the end of that meeting, we realized how much we had in common. There were areas that we did completely disagree on, but there were so many in the middle that we agreed upon. And so in the course of those two years as Senate president, I engaged all the Senate members and the co-chair of finance who manages the operating budget was Bert Stedman. Uh, Senator Stedman is from Sitka. And he did something that had never been done before. When we're doing the budget, the finance committee divides up and each finance member becomes the chairman of subcommittees that, that are in charge of departments. Well, Senator Stedman appointed those subcommittee chairmanships even to the minority members on the finance committee. That had never happened before. So again, engaging with both sides of the aisle, if you will. And so I think that began a process of this collegial, cooperative, working together on those common ground issues. The Senate has had bipartisan coalitions before, 28 and 9 and 10 and 11 were bipartisan coalitions. So it's not an unknown entity. It works really perhaps more smoothly in the Senate because there's only 20 members. And so that makes it a little easier. But but I think all of that that cooperative working together over the past four years just made it a natural grouping. And so when you were a citizen for those couple of years, watching things very closely, were you kind of in your head strategizing on how this might eventually work? Or was there any? No. No, I wasn't strategizing at all. I, I'm not a good political strategy person. Um, I just saw things happening that I just felt like this, we got to get this together. We got to get this straightened out for the future. So I want to ask, there's some Republicans in the state who were disappointed and frustrated that their fellow Republicans like you would join a caucus with Democrats. Um, What is your response to those folks? Well, I understand where they're coming from. I'm affiliated with the Republican Party, and I have been since I first voted way back. uh, I guess Ronald Reagan, perhaps, was a person running. In any case, I've also served on the state central committee. I've been a district chair for my district for a couple decades. And so I know what it is to have that very partisan view and to talk to the same a group of people that all have that same partisan view. It's very different when you're in a leadership role. You can't isolate in a leadership role. You have to talk to everyone. And so I think that's part of the phenomena that we saw with the ranked choice voting this new election uh, system uh, this year. The candidates that were successful were talking to everyone not just the partisans who are affiliated with their party. Was there a moment when you were in a leadership role where you realized that, you know, reaching across the aisle was especially important? I mean, you you mentioned one a little bit earlier. Were there any other moments? Well, 
It actually started when I first went to the legislature in 2011. There was a bill that was very important to my profession, nursing, and a poison pill had been put into the bill. It was a routine sunset bill to reestablish the nursing board. And one of the powerful Republicans put a poison pill in it. When it went to the governor, who was Governor Parnell at the time, he vetoed the bill. I mean, this was huge. This would eliminate the Board of Nursing. So the bill was offered again the next year. And again, the poison pill was put in. And I realized it needed to be taken out. So I had an amendment that would have removed it. Well, I had to get support for that amendment. And it had to be people other than Republicans because a Republican had put the poison pill in. So so I actually went to Betty Davis. And uh, if folks have been here for a while, Senator Betty Davis powerful individual, uh, left a legacy. In fact, East High is named after her now. But I went to her to start with, and she's a former nurse. I knew she would understand this issue, and she would care about it like I did, and she did care about it. In fact, she came to me afterward and said, by the way, could you put my name on your amendment also? It was her influence that allowed that to pass. And that was my first lesson in, you have to work with everybody. We all have different roles to play and all share certain values. That's really interesting. I, so let's go back to like this year's caucus and working together. Could you talk a little bit more about the principles binding together this caucus and what are its legislative priorities? When a caucus forms, it's a good idea to have it be based on an agreement to work together on the budget. There's only one constitutional requirement of the legislature, and that is that they pass a budget. So there has to be agreement that everyone gets a chance to work on it. So everyone gets to be on finance subcommittees that get into the details of budgets. Um, There's uh, really good representation at the finance committee table. In other words, geographic and political. So that's the agreement that forms a caucus. So that's what people often refer to as a binding caucus. There are no other required, uh, nobody's required to vote on other bills in certain ways. It's when we come down to that budget, we all need to be ready to say yes to the budget. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all happy about the budget because maybe our pet project didn't make it in, but we've had that opportunity to make the appeal and and make our case. There's also, this is a simple rules-based type thing, that when the Senate president makes a ruling from the, from the table, from the chair, that something is out of order, that the caucus will support that ruling. In other words, always supporting the Senate president. Uh, but the Senate president is confined to certain rulings that they can make. So that's the, that's the caucus agreement that we have. Can you say a little bit more specifically about what some budget priorities might be this year? That is a discussion that we actually haven't had in detail at this point. Broadly speaking, we all agree that education has to be funded in a productive way. The base student allocation, which is the formula, is very complex. And it's been talked about for many years We need to revisit this. We need to fix it. It's so complex. Other things sort of overwhelmed. This time, we're going to need to address education funding. We can't have schools that have 
budget deficits. And, and of course, if folks are in Anchorage listening to this, they understand what that's about. The other piece of education funding is the teacher workforce. We have to have qualified teachers in these classrooms. It's one thing to open up the classroom door, but if there's no teacher in the room, and that's happened. This fall, many schools around the state opened School district opens with without enough teachers in classrooms. So we need to look at the recruitment, retention, and retirement programs for our teachers. I think that in general, we need to understand how valuable the teaching workforce is for our state. It's valuable for our economy and for our future leadership. It's preparing the next generation, and, and we need to really value those folks that are in the teaching profession. So you have a state house right now, though, that has yet to organize, and the governor did not propose an increase to the BSA in his budget. Do you foresee challenges with that, with education funding or, or other issues, given that you have these factors in play at the moment? The governor has not proposed an increase in education funding. Remember that the governor uh, is required to propose his budget. He gets those proposals from the various departments, and then his priorities, of course, influence what makes it in. I believe that the representatives in the House share the Senate's concern about our education funding and the fact that we have flat funding once again. So I believe that will be a priority for a majority of those House members, regardless in how they organize, uh, ultimately. I want to talk about another element of Governor Dunleavy's budget proposal, and that would be the $3,900 PFD. And I want to start by asking a really broad question here. If you had all the power in the state, hypothetically, what would you do to deal with the matter of the PFD so it's not something the legislature has to return to year after year? If I were Tinkerbell with magic dust that exactly. could simply solve it, I would set a flat rate for the PFD at about $1,000 and adjust it for inflation going forward and put that in statute. However, I am not Tinkerbell, so it will be a discussion. And I would strongly support that discussion, including Alaskans, in really productive conversations that include a look at how our state is being run and the full finances of the state. Are we creating functional communities, functional businesses, functional families with the budgets that we are producing these days? Should we continue to believe that we're going to have another high oil price. There's a lot of us who have been here for a very long time. And when people say, oh, don't worry, we're going to have high oil prices, we remember those days of, dear God, please give us another oil boom, and we promise not to ruin it this time. We bought the T-shirts. We own the T-shirts. And that's really what happened this last spring. The price of oil went up. On May 17th, the price of a barrel of oil was $117 a barrel. And I was watching the Senate floor at that time. And I was watching senators saying, 
don't worry, this is going to go up even higher, the war in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. Well, when I was a new senator in 2011, 2012, I heard that same message at the Senate finance table. One senator saying, don't worry, oil is going to be $200 a barrel next year. We don't have to worry about spending restraints. And it didn't happen, right? We've had a steady de decline since then. We've got to stop believing that it's going to be high oil prices. Um, it's going to be uh, very moderate. I believe it's going to stick around $70 to $80 a barrel. That's where it is today. And our budget right now has shortfalls in it. When we go to, to Juneau in January, the governor is going to hand us a supplemental budget. That means we don't have enough money to even pay for everything this year. We've got to pull some more out of savings. These are the kinds of conversations that I want Alaskans, all Alaskans, to be able to participate in to solve this issue of the dividend. I think you got at this, but I should ask the question directly. Do you think the governor's $3,900 PFD is realistic this year? I don't believe that it's realistic. I know that he's interested in looking at carbon credits. Great. I appreciate that kind of forward thinking, uh, looking at reducing the climate effects. Certainly our state is feeling all of that. But the fact of the matter is, to me, those carbon credits are almost like a cryptocurrency. It's not really real. California is doing that right now. And three of our native corporations are selling carbon credits to California. And they say that in the past six years or so, they have actually earned about $100 million by doing that. That's over six years. What would the state of Alaska actually see from that? How many years would it take to actually get a program like that up and running? How dependable is that? If we're committing our forests as a carbon capture element, and remember CO2 is plant food, so the trees would be absorbing it, right? And that's great. We have forest fires, some of the largest forest fires ever in these past couple years. We have spruce bark beetles, which kill the trees, which now are releasing carbon dioxide into the environment, not absorbing it anymore. So... How does all of this get offset with credits that we've sold to some other entity through a broker? Anyway, we're getting into the weeds. It's, they're interesting weeds, but yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of details here, uh -huh. and, um, and it's not going to be a quick fix. Well, that's a great place to take a short break. When we're back, I want to pick up with a question on ranked choice voting. At Steam.Coffee, we're proud to support great journalism, and we're proud of our pursuit of great coffee. We search the world for the finest raw materials and then roast them to perfection at our Anchorage headquarters. All with one thing in mind, the finest coffee possible in your cup. Come visit us at either of our Anchorage cafes or online at steamdot.com. We're back, and today we're speaking with Republican Senator-elect Kathy Giesel. I want to go beyond this upcoming legislative session and talk a bit about ranked choice voting with you. As you mentioned, you lost in a primary to a farther right challenger in the election before this one, but in the most recent election, you won after ranked choice voting was enacted in Alaska. What is your perspective on ranked choice voting? Do you think it went well, and do you think it should stick around? Well, that's a broad question. 
I think that it did what I believe it was intended to do, and that is provide more choice to Alaskans. It did take the two political parties out of the mix. In the traditional election system, the two political parties control the primary election. And then, of course, the general, uh, who went forward for the general. But with ranked choice voting, that control is taken away, and it is totally in the hands of the voters. There was a lot of concern that voters wouldn't understand it, that it would be too complicated, things like that. There was a lot of work done. The Division of Elections did an outstanding job educating people. There was exit polling done after the general election. And it turns out that 92% of the respondents leaving the general election ballot box said they had received instruction on how to use it. 79%, nearly 80%, said it was simple, not a big deal. And 60% said they felt it created more competitive races. I can tell you that for me, it changed completely how I campaigned, and I believe this was true for other candidates also. Typically, in the previous system, for a primary election, candidates buy a database from vendors, and that database contains the names of who lives in the house you're walking up to, what their party affiliation is, perhaps what ballot petitions they might have signed, what groups they belong to, so you know everything about them, and you decide whether you're going to knock on that door or not. You want to go to your, air quotes, base, right, the people that are most likely to vote for you. And then in the general election, you open it up a bit more. Well, in this election, I did not buy a database. I know some others did and still wanted to know who was behind the door, but I didn't want to know. I wanted to talk to everyone. So I knocked at every single door. And the interesting thing was that sometimes they were people that recognized me who were Democrats. And I had one gentleman say to me, oh, you've knocked at the wrong door. I'm a Democrat and I'm a super voter. You've knocked at the wrong door. And I said, no, actually, you're the person I want to talk to. And so we had a great conversation and found that common ground on so many issues. There were issues, of course, we still did not agree on, but that's okay. There was lots in the middle. And that's the productive middle that I believe Alaskans want to get to. Let's get some positive stuff done, get our economy back on track, our families functioning again. Uh, that takes me to lots of different subjects that I talked about with folks at the door. But that's what I think ranked choice voting was meant to do and did achieve. There are some bumps. There were ballots that had to be discarded because people didn't vote them correctly. We need to find a way for people to cure, fix their ballot if they did it wrong right there at the polling place. So that's a piece that needs to be fixed. I've had folks say, well, you know, my elderly grandma wasn't quite sure how to do it and was afraid to ask for help. We, we need to help folks get over being afraid to ask for help. So there's little things, but overall, I think it's been a very positive thing for Alaska. I'm curious, when you were door knocking this time around, was it a more pleasant experience? Was it a less pleasant experience? Like, what, what was your overall experience talking to kind of everybody this time? It was very fun. I never thought I would say this, but I looked forward to going door to door every day. Yeah, it was really fun. 
talking to such a variety of people, uh, from folks living in million-dollar houses to folks living in trailers. Just such interesting input, views on issues, and incredibly smart Alaskans doing really great things. It was, it was wonderful. So just broadening that a little bit, what do you think the impact of ranked choice voting and open primaries will be on the legislature going forward? The impact on the legislature, I think, will see it being very positive. Again, I've mostly focused on the Senate, but the folks that are coming into this next session have talked to broad cross-sections of people. They've heard from that larger group of Alaskans, and I believe have a broader picture now of what Alaskans are actually wanting to achieve. I think in the House, we've seen much more of a mix of folks elected, and it hasn't it hasn't uh, preferred or worked out to benefit one party versus another. It really seems to have been a mix. Uh, certainly in our national congressional team, we have a mix now with Mary Peltola as our congresswoman. And there's common ground there, middle ground there. She helped Senators Murkowski and Sullivan just yesterday, I believe, get some advocacy for Willow, uh, the oil development on the North Slope. So that's the kind of productive legislating, the productive leadership we need. I want to talk a little bit more about being a Republican in Alaska nowadays, though, and start out with a little broader question for you. When you say you are a Republican, what does that mean to you? That's a good question that I do get asked. It means that I believe, you know, I haven't read the party platform lately, but um, I did help write lots of it. I believe that families are the core unit of our society, that businesses should have the ability to function without undue government regulation. At the same time, we need to protect our environment while we're developing those resources that actually allowed us to become a state. So I'm pro-development, pro-business, but at the same time, and I'm not sure the party platform actually reflects this, as a lifelong Alaskan born here before statehood, I care deeply about our environment and that we don't allow it to be destroyed in the process. There have been some real divisions in the Alaska GOP in recent years. However, one example would be the censures of Kelly Merrick and Lisa Murkowski. Those have been recently undone. That's the view from the outside. Anyhow, I mean, how would you characterize the state of the GOP in Alaska right now? Well, I think that Craig Campbell, who is the national committeeman for the Alaska Republican Party, really kind of reflected that about a month ago or so. I saw a quote from him saying, you know, we've got some divisions that we need to work on and 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 really clarify. I, I think he was expressing what the state central committee is realizing. These censures are not productive. They only divide people more. So I'm hoping that that will actually come true. I'm curious, I mean, what about pressures from the public and how does that factor in? I mean, I'm sure you hear from lots of voters who are, you know, maybe farther right, maybe very into um, Donald Trump as a leader. Like, what, how do those pressures factor in? 
I do occasionally get emails from folks. Um, there was, uh, of course, a social media appeal to people to notify those of us that, that joined the coalition and to encourage us to withdraw. But actually, those are probably, well, less than 10 people that have done that. I do put out a weekly newsletter. And I've done that for about the last 10 years, even when I wasn't in office. A few of those folks went so far as to say, I'm not subscribing to this anymore. I don't like what you've done. But it's very, very few. And as I said before, when you come into a role like being a legislator or assembly person or whatever it is, you can't isolate anymore in a limited, I'll say, echo chamber of a small political group. You really do have to work with everyone. You have to hear all the voices and represent as much as possible all those voices and concerns. Do you have any thoughts on where Republicans in Alaska go from here and, and how you move forward on that? I have no clue what will happen. No. I, I know that many of us that have been elected are going to encourage more bipartisanship, but I don't know if it'll take hold. <laughs> So let's pivot, and I want to finish by asking a couple questions about the economy. The University of Alaska recently released a report showing Alaska's at or near the bottom economically on some key measures, like the GDP and employment growth. What do you think Alaska needs to do to reverse some of those trends? Well, first of all, we need to make sure that that university is con we continue to fund it adequately. I was one of many of the legislators that had huge concerns about those massive budget cuts on the university. I, my master's degree is from the University of Alaska, and I know that they lost a large number of faculty. Uh, in fact, uh, my understanding is right now 50% of their faculty have been there two years or less. When you're educating a healthcare workforce for Alaska, that workforce has to be able to understand the various cultures in our state, the various economic factors. And it, when we have instructors that are coming from the lower 48 that have no clue, there's no way they can impart that information. The same thing is true of our teaching workforce. Uh, I worked for the North Slope Borough School District for nine years. And I would go in the fall and there would be shiny new teachers there from Alabama. A few months later, they'd be gone. That university is the opportunity we have to grow our own, not just of teachers and nurses, but of geologists and miners and oil engineers, physicians. The WAMI program, I'm thrilled that the governor added some money to the budget for the WAMI program. At the same time, we had to fight hard to keep that WAMI money from being vetoed or swept a few years ago. So... We are rebuilding. That's good. We need to keep doing that. That will help the economy when businesses can hire actual Alaskans who live here. We're going to have to deal with the PFD. The $3,900 PFD uh, will cost approximately $2.4 billion. Just half of that amount of money would make a massive difference in the education system in addressing the cost of energy. There's things we can do to reduce the cost of energy. Electric energy, for example. Getting gas off the North Slope to the community of Fairbanks for another. I realize we're in Anchorage. Who cares about Fairbanks? Well, that's where I was born and raised. But it's a strong community in our state. We've got to care about Fairbanks. We've got to get lower cost energy to rural Alaska. They're working hard on renewables. That's great. 
We need to keep that going. And what the state can do is help bolster that. So we need to look at the outcomes from our budget. What do we want Alaska communities, families, businesses to look like? And that's where we invest our money. That doesn't necessarily equal handing out large PFDs and then reducing the people that are regulating our water and our air and teaching our kids in their schools. And then another element of that report that I want to follow up on is about high out-migration. Um, there's more people leaving the state than coming in. And I, I just want to ask you about that trend. Um, what do you think needs to be done to reverse that trend? It might touch on some of the things you brought up earlier. You know, people, all of us, like stability. We like predictable and stable. And in the past few years, well, and actually since our oil revenue has been going down, there's been instability. Our reliance on the price of a barrel of oil creates instability. The budget is up, down, who knows where it's going to be. We've had discussions about increasing taxes on our main industry, and then that doesn't pass, and then we're cutting the budget again. And all of this has led to many highly educated professionals, highly qualified people saying, pause up, I, I can get better jobs, more stable positions down in the lower 48. And so they're leaving. We see that in so many professions. So then we end up, in many cases, having fo hiring folks from the lower 48 to fly up, work two weeks, go back home, and they're taking uh, the revenue with them. So stability, I think, is the key. And that means having rational budgets and really looking at, at outcomes for where we're spending the money. I really should have asked this earlier, but when you speak about rational budgets, do taxes ever eventually come in there, whether on the industry or income taxes or anything like that? As we look at the governor's 10-year plan, which he put out uh, last week, we see that in approximately 2026, we're down to not having enough money to fund fully a budget that he's proposed, right? And these are flat budgets, Flat funding for education, flat funding for state employees who regulate our water and, and air and oil extraction and mining. So that's a problem. When we look at these budgets, they're also budgets that are calling for very, very large PFDs going out to citizens. At some point, folks have to realize you can't have a school that's functioning, fully staffed with teachers, school buses, and plowed roads, and a $3,900 PFD. They can't coexist. The state of Alaska can't print money. So that's the conversation we have to have. Big PFD and an income tax, is that really where we want to go? I don't know that we could create an income tax high enough to still fill the gap that's left because of large PFDs. So that's the hard conversation that I think Alaskans need to participate in and help us out with. So I just want to make sure on a very basic level, I'm understanding you right. So, I mean, you're talking about not $3,900 PFDs. Is there ever a point in the conversation where there has to be some kind of tax to help solve things? Or do you think dealing with the PFD will get us to a place in a budget where where we can be sustainable? 
there's been a lot of fiscal modeling on this question. And the most recent modeling was done earlier this year, so less than a year ago now, that showed that if we took what is being proposed as the PFD and we reduced it down to 25% of that amount, the other 75% going to fund state services, that that is sustainable, that we would actually have uh, adequate funding for state services, including snow plowing in schools, and also be able to put away some money into savings. The permanent fund itself, which is the source of the dividend, would still be able to grow. We would not be robbing it and decimating it. So yes, we actually can fund going forward, but it means that kind of limitation on a dividend. One last question. Why did you want to go back to Juno? I mean, it seems like every year there's all this talk of frustration and gridlock and negativity, and you had a break. I mean, you missed all the COVID stuff, I believe, but, you know, you saw everything happening and you decided to return. Why was that? I got some of the COVID thing as Senate president 2020. Oh, that's, that's right. I am yes. so sorry. Yes. I'm so sorry. All the that's debate right. over masks, closing the Capitol. I, right. I was born and raised here. And I don't plan to leave. It, it matters deeply to me where the future of this state's going. I love this state very much and the people of this state. So I wanted to get back in and contribute what I could, hopefully some rational thought and, and some productive forward progress. Well, that's a good note to end on. Senator Giesel, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ADN Politics. You can subscribe to the show in whichever podcast app you're listening to right now. You can keep up with the rest of our coverage on ADN.com. And you can subscribe to ADN there, which is the best way to support our work, including this show. Thanks to our guest today, Senator Kathy Giesel. This episode was produced by Evan Phillips and Zachariah Hughes. Our music is also by Evan Phillips. David Hewlin is our editor. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This episode of ADN Politics was brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible.